Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast, in association with Retail Focus Magazine. Brought to you by Visual Thinking, inspiring retail performance. Hello and welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. I'm Lucinda Bowden and in this episode we're asking, is mainstream retail dead? Over the next half an hour or so we'll be discussing what the future looks like for mainstream retailers. I'm joined by Steve James Royal, the founder of The Yard Creative, Richard Ash, the CEO and founder of Green Room Design, and Carl McKeever, Managing Director and founder of Visual Thinking. Well, let's start by understanding what shoppers are really looking for from the modern retail experience. Richard Ash, can we start with you? What are your thoughts? I think there's been a huge uh, shift over the last few years moving away from uh, mainstream retailers to people wanting to go out into retail and find products and services uh, that are really right for them. They've been spoiled by the internet. They can find anything they want. And I think when they go out into retail, uh, they want that to be the same. So certainly we're seeing um, brands and retailers um, desperately trying to come up with ways in which they can create uh, their environments to, uh, you know, to very much uh, compete with, uh, with, the, with the online experience. Carl, this personalisation for shoppers, this brand for me, is this simply a fad or do you think it's the future? People have become very familiar with the whole concept of that it's all about me. And I think people are now feeling much more empowered to know that their choices are taken seriously by brands and that they can pretty much ask for what they want. Well, I think what we're looking at really across the whole of not just retail, but society at large is the fact that we have become much more individualised as a society. You know, whereas 20 years ago, it would have been quite uh, easy to see a dominant hairstyle or a dominant clothing trend at any one moment in time. We are now a nation and a country of individuals. And I think why that makes that so challenging for retailers is that it's very hard to consider what good looks like for a consumer as part of that experience. Experience because what good looks like could effectively come down to the mood you're in, what day of the week or whatever else is happening in your day. Steve, what's your perspective on that? Well, I certainly don't think it's a fad because it's what retail has been forever. Um, if you talk about personalised retail experiences, when you used to go into a shop 30 years ago, you'd get to know the person that was working there and they would welcome you by your first name and they would get to know you and then would offer you products that suited what you liked. So actually, no, it's not a fad, it's just recycling back round and it's the core fundamental basics of retailing. And I think in the spirit of kind of what we're talking about today with mainstream retailing, I'd just like to kind of throw back out to the panel kind of like a challenge on what is mainstream retailing today? Because if you look at the definition of it, it's very much something that is considered normal. So in the normal world of retail today, are we talking about boots, Debenhams, the more old school retailers... Or are we actually talking about mainstream retail coming under fire from discounted retailers? But actually, is that not now the mainstream? What's your take on it, Richard? I think, I, who wants to shop at a mainstream retailer? It just sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> it really just, does. You know, it, it, it sounds old and fuddy-duddy and, and not particularly appealing at all. And I think that's probably one thing that retailers would hate to be 
you know, to be considered as a, as a, as a mainstream retailer. They like to think they've got a niche. They not, like to think they've got a, an individual proposition that nobody else has got. And of course, that, that becomes increasingly hard as competition moves in. I think, you know, most brands are always studying trends and they're seeing the way consumers uh, react to things. And as soon as they spot it uh, being taken up and accepted by the mainstream, they realise there's a, a profit stream from it and they'll move into it. And as soon as they move into it, obviously uh, consumers then look to move away from it. So it's it, it's very much a, you know, a push me, pull me, and it, it keeps moving all the time. And that, I think that goes back to the, the point the guys were saying earlier on is that you 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 think you know your consumers. You can't almost you know write down in a, in a spreadsheet. We know our consumers. This is what they're like because they're con- consistently evolving. So you have to consistently study them. And that you know and and quite often as well, um, consumers will will differ greatly. You might you might sit down and, and look at your demographic split um, and think you know your consumers. But of course there can be a a great difference between a you know thirty five year old female up north to a 35-year-old female down south. So that, so really understanding that on a, on a macro and a micro level is absolutely critically important. And I think the, the opportunity there um, really, and the thing that's going to help retailers do it, is, is, is very much big data and understanding, uh, you know, they can draw so much data from so many things nowadays. But then, of course, the key to it is how they use it and how they how that data actually influences their designs or or the actual uh, mastering of the of the customer journeys. Steve, it seems to me that today we have a very fickle shopper. How does a retailer keep hold of that shopper and maintain or get any element of brand loyalty? Well, I think the moment you start to think about how I can keep hold of them, you've lost. Because they will change. There are so many factors that will change that person's mindset in today's world. And choice is on an astronomical level, right? So you will try everything you can to keep them, but actually that's not the right way to go about it. The right way to go about it is actually keeping them engaged, you know, making sure you're constantly talking to them, constantly relevant, and for the wonders of everyone in this room, constantly innovating. Um, but every brand should always be kind of asking themselves the question, what do they set out to do? What are their core beliefs, their core big ideas, and how are they then constantly evolving from that on? Carl? I think you make a really valid point there, Steve. And I think whether you're a niche business or whether you are aspiring to become mainstream, it's that clarity on how you manage that proposition from being small to being bigger to perhaps being biggest, which really makes all the difference. And there are many, many examples of brands which have succeeded in that to greater or lesser degree. You know, you take a brand like Zara, effectively it's still doing now what it started off doing in 1974. They've added a couple of extra formats onto that. So home is new. Children are new, but actually it's the same lifestyle brand that it always was. The only difference is it's bigger in scale and it has a superstructure of process underneath that, which enables it to bring fashion fast to the market. Now, other brands aren't quite as slick in that. So I think being a mainstream brand really means that you actually have to be much more agile and more nimble. And I think that's one of the things that the bigger retailers, who are typically our mainstream volume brands, struggle with most. So what you've just described there of Zara is very much, yes, they started out here as their core offer, but they innovated to stick within 
and build around that. You know, their home offer reflects their clothing offer. Indeed, it you know, does. You, yeah. you can wear Zara clothing and sit on a Zara sofa. The two don't collide. You know, they still sit within the same arena in that sort of sense. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's one of the inherent challenges in the whole notion of mainstream. If you're trying to broaden your appeal, how far is too far? And how far do you stretch your brand before it starts to lose some of its value? Many years ago, Next went down the road of actually having their own line of fitted kitchens. Now, to people who were familiar with the Next brand, perhaps that was a step too far. Richard, what's your take on a big mainstream retailer stretching themselves too far? We see it all the time, retailers um, having to expand and widen their proposition. And that will take the form of, you know, as Carl said, you know, moving into new uh, product ranges and introducing new services. And I think I, I quite like it because it keeps things fresh. And I love to work, walk into a retailer and think, you know, they, oh my word, that's really interesting. They weren't doing that this time last year. They're evolving. I was in Paper Chase the other day, and they, they, they're doing a wonderful thing now where they're, they're introducing um, sort of trial zones where people can go in and uh, experiment with the products and have craft sessions. And they, they invite young people in, you know, for, for parties, and parents can go in and look out and make greeting cards. So they're really uh, challenging. They're no longer just purely a card retailer, which a few years ago they probably were. They're introducing it and they're making it a destination. If anybody's interested in craft or art or, or, or gifting or anything, that is the place to go. And I think that's really important for retailers to keep things moving, keep things fresh. How important is it these stores that they offer not just a retail experience, but there's also something else on offer, Steve? Massively, and you know, we, our whole industry has been talking about theatre and retail for probably 20 years now, and it's probably only the last sort of 10 to 5 years we've really started that to see that come about. Uh, the Nordic states do it phenomenally well, and we were in Stockholm earlier this year, and just about every single store has a coffee shop or a, another offer within it. The other thing I was going to say is that I'm certainly seeing a lot of brands now who are wanting to try and position their, uh, their proposition as being not mainstream. So I was in a, a coffee shop the other day and uh, it, it, it was... It looked very much like a local coffee shop. They'd, they'd gone into... It was Coffee Plus, uh, num Coffee Number One. And they had... Uh, had the whole interior had been designed very much on a local basis. So they'd got influence... They'd got history about the area. Uh, and there were local queues within the store that, that were very much historical and, and relative to that area. And I didn't... Wasn't aware. I thought it was just a local guy had set up. But then I found out they're actually part of a large brewery. And, and so I think that, we, that that's quite interesting. I'm seeing... Um, you know, large brands who've wanted to create a huge, you know, network and looks to be incredibly powerful and strong are now actually going anti that and are actually trying to create something that's very small and personal and relevant to that area. And I think that's really interesting. And we've seen that. That's been that's been happening in a number of sectors. So Waterstones, I think, have been opening some local shops. We also see that um, brands like Mamas and Poppers have been experimenting with small boutiques and sort of almost niche stores in the likes of Bayswater. I think, though, there's an inherent difficulty in doing that, is that if you are a mainstream brand and you've spent a long time developing a lot of those brand values and all the good things that brands are trying to do with their consumers, establishing trust and a dialogue and rapport, those types of things, 
I think if you then, in a sense, almost go underground and do things on a covert basis, there's a chance that you might actually lose some of that goodwill along the way. And certainly Waterstones had a big backlash when they opened stores in Suffolk under a different, what was perceived to be an independent name. Only then when people found out that it was still actually the big company behind it that was having all the muscle, did it actually cause some negative reaction? Steve, what's your response to that? Yeah, the the trend of being local uh, has certainly kind of come around in the last sort of five years. And I would tend to agree with Carl on this in the actually for a big brand to pretend to be something they're not is really dangerous. Um, and certainly I don't think any of us here would recommend. But there are definitely ways that brands can tap into local communities. And I think... If you look at big brands, Primark, you know, they do it amazingly well. If you look at what they've just opened up in Madrid, you know, their huge flagship store there, you know, it's become almost tourist attraction for that city. So the the building is a very old building. Uh, it's about, I think, five floors with a huge atrium space in the middle. And wrapping around each one of the levels is this huge transparent screen that a lot of the content on it is put together by local artists. And when you walk in, the impact is out of this world. But they haven't tried to be something they're not. They're true to who they are, and they have really ramped it up. I've certainly seen many brands try to make themselves relevant to the local community. And certainly sports brands have been particularly good at that. We've seen Nike's Running Club where they're opening up stores and inviting, uh, you know, runners to come there. Uh, There's no requirement for you to buy the product. They're not really bothered about that. They just want you to get in the store, linger around, meet fellow runners and then and then get out there and do it and i think things like that we're going to see a lot more of that that's certainly a, a really growing trend you know the, the uh, some some of the cycling clubs as well that they they use out of stores i think that's a, a trend that's really set to grow what can a retailer who's listening here thinking i don't know how to increase my sales i don't know how to increase my footprint what changes can people practically make which will make a difference well, again, I go back to saying it before, know your consumer. Um, so obviously, if you know them very well, know what they get up to. Uh, and don't always tie it necessarily to a, to, a, to a product or service that you offer it. So let's look at, you know, you know look at, uh, um, you know, art products or, or automotive products. Think about what people who consume those products get up to at weekends. So, for example, you know, automotive and Audi, you know, have always had a great relationship with sort of outdoor winter sports. So things like skiing and what have you. So could they, you know, could they open up certain areas of their showroom to, to you know, to, to talk about skiing or, or something along those lines? Retailers exist to make money. We should never lose sight of that. You know, for me, being mainstream should not be a a discrediting badge. This is something which actually can be celebrated because mainstream brands are often the ones which we most trust and the ones that we turn to in our hour of need. Good example for me is recently, and I will profess, I can do many things, but I'm not interested in cars. But my car told me that I needed engine oil. Clueless, but with a light on my dashboard, I went to Halfords, a mainstream brand which I know and trust. But of course, they've innovated their proposition in store. So not only do they have a good and credible oil display, but they also have a keypad panel where you can type in your number plate and it will tell you exactly what engine oil you should buy. 
I didn't need staff assistance. The assistance had been provided for me. It wasn't just experiential, it was useful. And as a result of that useful feature from a trusted mainstream retailer, I put about 15 quid in their till. So for me, we shouldn't get too carried away on these kind of events and experiential spaces and all the rest of it. All of that's really important. But what good mainstream retailers are all about is really having great delivery on their propositions. And you can innovate and you can improve and you should be focused on doing better. And if you do that, you'll still continue to have a place in the mainstream arena. What other examples have you got of those who are really making go of it, doing the right things, Steve? Uh, JD, JD Sports Group are doing a fantastic job right now. Uh, If you look at their offer in store. Um, It's been expanding over the last 10 years and they're really adapting to change in that sector. Um, Richard mentioned earlier the sports market are doing a lot and it's very fierce. But the JD guys have done well to keep engaged and keep relevant with their audience. So they introduced a kiosk uh, digital point within that and looked at saying, right, okay, I'm sorry, we don't have your size 10 in, but if you come over here and buy it here, then we'll get it delivered to you at home tomorrow. And there might be a discount incentive for you to do that. Um, They saw hardly any cannibalization of sales, but actually their increase in sales was huge. We're talking maybe 30%. And Talking about sort of relevance, that's a really good way to kind of say, right, well, how are we going to find our niche? How are we going to keep expanding without detriment to the experience we offer? Richard, what other examples have you got of retailers who are really doing it right? Well, I love Apple. Um, and mind you, they could probably turn up in the back of a pub car park and open up the boot of the car and they're going to sell their product. So, it, But they do it very, very well and they do it consistently well. I think that the, the one other retailer that I you know, particularly like going into is John Lewis. It isn't busy, it isn't, uh, it isn't particularly um, cluttered with, with the, their brands, but they do it very well at Oxford Street. So you can go into a, almost like a house setting and see how some of these electronic things can actually enhance your life. And I think you know, making those things relevant f- for you as a consumer is particularly important. Carl? I think for me, one of the key examples has to be IKEA. And it's a great brand which is huge in scale, but still managed to think small. Uh, they're very innovative as a company. Um, they have things such as their dining clubs, where they're taking over small uh, city centre shop units to uh, provide food uh, and service within uh, an environment where they can essentially open up conversations and allow people to use their products. They also have hot houses for innovation in terms of new products and looking at how trends will go and affect new product development. So for me, IKEA is one of these brands which is very, very clear about what its proposition is. And it manages to navigate that proposition and and explain it effectively to all different types of consumers. So whether they're students or families or even divorcees who perhaps once had a home, have lost their home and they're setting at home again. So, you know, 
we're talking about mainstream today, and this for me is a mainstream retailer that really demonstrates how you do it well, so much so that they celebrate the fact that they're mainstream. You know, their tagline is the wonderful every day. You know, they make a virtue of the fact and they applaud this uh, and get people to buy into that fact. So for me, it's about strength of proposition, expert delivery, they perfect their craft, and they have a tremendous dialogue with consumers. So Steve, are there any retailers you believe out there still have a great deal of work to do and why? Uh, Yeah, I guess there's plenty. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in business. Um, But uh, I think there are challenges to all sorts of different retailers for different reasons. Um, One that is a household name within the UK uh, is Boots. And, you know, we have unfortunately over the last decade seen some of the household names in the UK uh, disappear off our high street. Um, Now, I certainly don't think Boots are at that point yet, but I kind of feel that there's a an element of excitement that is missing from Boots. Um, Yes, you could say that it's very much a convenience retailer, um, but it's position that it holds on the high street and how frequently found it is across the UK, it kind of almost has a place and almost a responsibility to bring excitement to that sector. From a male perspective, I just don't enjoy going in. And maybe that's just because the products I'm looking for are shoved in the back corner on a two-bay gondola hidden in the dark. Um, And maybe I just don't find it relevant to me, but um, in terms of its wider audience, um, it heroes on some really key categories. And I guess it's kind of how it brings those main categories to life. Carl? Well, mine's kind of a a big group, really, and I think it's a group that's got plenty of problems. Arcadia, as we know, has got many brands within its stable, and they're not all equals within that uh, sort of style set. In recent times, they've tried to amalgamate and put a lot of this together under the outfit brand, but actually that's probably one of the most vanilla shopping experiences that's been created to date. It's a fascia with a series of brands inside. Each of those brands blend and blur and meld together without distinctiveness. And I think really that's indicative almost of the bigger problem at Arcadia. Each of those individual brands, some are better, some are weaker. Many of them have lost their strength and power that they once were. And I think the inherent challenge which the Arcadia Group have got with so many properties and the cost of operating all of those businesses, if you are going to bring them together all under one roof, you really have to have something blockbuster to bring people in. And I think outfit is just too ordinary. And I think if Philip Green is looking for, in a sense, almost the next jewel in the crown, he should be really looking to invest in outfit as the real driver of how the rest of these brands could still have relevance and value in the future. So I think part of Outfit's problem is generally just its lack of identity and lack of creative brand management to really make it pop. On that note, we can move on to a different perspective on this, and that's what the mainstream retailer can learn from the independent retailer, which doesn't have the big budget, has a smaller store. It's a very different shopping experience. What do you think they can learn, Carl? I think one of the things that independents can be uh, very good at by virtue of their size is creativity Um, without those uh, huge burdens of having to do uh, everything and everywhere. They can invest in experiences which are highly unique, often very imaginative and, uh, and, and market leading. 
I think where um, the high street can also learn from this, though, and mainstream retailers can take it on board, is to make sure that as well as perfecting the, uh, the, the, the absolutely necessary fundamentals of delivering brands in a consistent way and making sure that best practice is shared across the chain, there also needs to be a twin track approach there so that innovation and newness is also being pioneered within the company. I think more often than not, it's when big brands go stale, that's when their decline is almost um, uh, coming next. So I think the independents can be much more light-footed they're much more nimble and more agile in terms of creativity. They do so with the passion of people who um, really live and breathe and believe in those businesses. And I think that's one of the characteristics that's often missing from mainstream retail. They've become depersonalised. The boardroom has a good way of desensitising uh, a lot of the things which actually drive consumers. And what can end up being the case is a bland experience rather than a brand experience. Steve, what methods do you think retailers can adopt from the independents? I think Carl's right. You know, their ability to adapt um, makes it one of their key strengths. But I think as well, um, service and empowerment of staff. Uh, You think about any independent retailer you've been into, they're always willing to give you time. And in an economy where we are time-starved, it's something that we don't necessarily get from the big boys and what that then leads to is an emotional connection with that brand and that is probably one of the strongest attributes a brand can get in today's world and you know whether or not you're an independent coffee house or a small fashion retailer or you're nike every single brand across the spectrum is trying to emotionally connect with their consumers Bringing us back then to our key question, is mainstream retail dead, Steve? I don't think it is. No, I think it it will very much be part of the retail uh, makeup uh, over the coming decades. But just like any other retailer, they have to be brave. And the moment where you just sit still, then you're going to disappear. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners will acknowledge that, but sometimes in the bigger businesses, it's harder to take those risks and harder to be brave. But those brands that do will be the ones that survive. So your top tip for top those tip, to make it? Take risks. Um, f- for me, um, they say adversity is the mother of invention. I think it's a very in- exciting time for retail. Um I think it's challenging, hugely challenging. Take Steve's point, if, you, if you're not moving ahead, you're getting left behind and you will eventually end up like so many of the retailers that we've seen go in the last few years who didn't move with the times. And, and you have to innovate, you have to be at the forefront, listen to your customers, invest in your staff, uh, they're absolutely critical, they're the face of your business and very much they're, they're your eyes and your ears as well. Thank you, Richard. Carl? I think it's hard to identify a top tip. I think there are so many things on brands' uh, list requiring to be done. And I think it's increasingly difficult to try and do everything all at once. There just isn't the money around to do that. So I think uh, my advice would be a brand has to be very clear about what it is and what it does and how it wants to do it differently to its competitor. But I think knowing that is one thing. You then have to choose 
the, uh, the, the things on which you're really going to go out and differentiate. Do them well, own them, and then make those the reasons that people come and visit you. You've been listening to a Retail Exchange podcast. I'm sure you'd like to join me in thanking my guest today, Steve James Royal, the founder of The Yard Creative, Richard Ash, the CEO and founder of Greenroom Design, and Carl McKeever, the managing director and founder of Visual Thinking. I'm Lucinda Bowden. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. This episode is brought to you by retail transformation agency Visual Thinking in association with Retail Focus magazine. Thanks for listening.